Hello, welcome back. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be addressing you here. And uh, we're in a series called True Faith. We're looking at the subject of faith and we're using some uh, great men and women of faith from the past to just identify what it is. What is Christian faith? What is it when it's uh, true faith, when it's in practice? And that's really uh, the subject that we're looking at here today, that uh, can my faith be practical? Can my faith be practical? I'm going to spoil it for you from the off and and say that actually the answer to this is your faith can't be anything other than practical. Faith by definition is practical. And I'm going to substantiate that for you. Don't worry, I'm not just going to put it out there and leave it hanging. I'm going to substantiate it. But throughout this series, we've been looking to question uh, different perceptions of faith. Because faith, I feel like faith has got a bad press, really. I think faith has been misdescribed, that it's been, uh, it, it's been relegated to this airy-fairy, uh, foundationless thing, which is a, a not, not a lot of use to anyone. And it's, it's kind of something to be pitied in, in uh, someone. If you, if you see, oh, it's a person of faith, you're like, oh, bless, a person of faith. And uh, what, what, what we've been looking at are various uh, clarifications on the term and trying to question some of these uh, dichotomies that you get in your head, faith, faith uh, versus reason, faith versus science, for example. And uh, these will be familiar to you. They might even be things that you hold on to. You, you, you might even be guilty of, of saying to someone, oh, look, you've got your reason, I've got my faith, or you've got your scientific knowledge, I've got my faith that's, uh, that's not tangible. And we've just been pointing out in this series that actually these things need to be brought into question if you're going to have a biblical understanding of what faith is. For example, faith versus reason. These two aren't opposed at all. Faith is a reasoning about an object. A faith has to be in something. You can't just say, I have faith. The problem is you can just say, I have faith. I'm growing in my faith. And no one will do the right thing, which is question you and say to you, in what? Faith in what? Right? Because faith has to have an object. Faith is trust. Faith is active. It has to have an object. And uh, so it's something, therefore, by, re- by reason of having an object that can be reasoned about. Faith and reason aren't in opposition. Faith versus science. So scientific observation, measurement, uh, testing, repeatable, tangible testing. Even that itself relies on faith. And you might think I'm doing, pulling the wool over your eyes here or that I'm doing some kind of smokescreen. No, no, no less than Charles Darwin recognized this. And you, you can look it up. It's on wiki. So it's legit. Uh, it's, it's known as Darwin's doubt, something that he, he realized himself as he's looking at this theory of evolution by natural selection. He's thinking to himself, hang on, how did my faculties, my touching, my sight evolve? If they came from a blind process, then surely the things that I'm doing right now, I'm exercising an unwarranted faith in. I'm putting a trust in my faculties that really, if they came not from a designer, but from a place which uh, is by accident, I'm not decrying evolution as a theory, I'm decrying godlessness as a theory. Okay, you hear that right? But these things, faith and science, they're not opposed because you're having to exercise faith to do any scientific research in the world. You're having, to, you're having to do that when you get up in the morning and you put faith in your legs to hold you and your eyes to see correctly. Faith and reason aren't opposed. Faith and science aren't opposed. And today I want to talk about faith and reality. And guess what? Not opposed. 
not opposed. So Karl Marx was very famous for saying that religion is the opium of the masses, meaning that it's not true, but it's, it's nice in that it gives you a bit of anesthetic. It gets you through life. And people, people can take this view of faith, that it's not true. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's to be pitied. It's something that you should feel sorry for people who are, are afflicted with faith. But it's, you know, it gets them through the night. It's, it's one of those things. Uh, it's not harmful because it's not practical. What I'm saying here today is that faith isn't escapism. And, you know, if you feel a little twinge there, actually my faith is a little bit like escapism, I want you to be encouraged. It's more than escapism. It's got more for you because of the one in whom you have faith, the one who you're trusting in, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. And uh, we're going to address this issue, can my faith be practical? I'm going to tell you, yes, it is, and I'm going to tell you for why. And I'm going to talk about this lady, Selina Hastings, the Countess of Huntingdon, who lived for the majority of uh, the 18th century. Let me just introduce a few landmarks of her life to you before I read the scriptures. Uh, she was the second of three daughters, born in Astwell Manor in Brackley. That's a bit of a giveaway that she wasn't of the low breeding that uh, some of us here are. Uh, she, she was a noble, and this was, this was when being nobility really mattered. She was born into a noble family, second of three daughters, and she was a very serious child. She was, uh, she was born uh, caring very much about uh, the big questions in life. She went to a funeral of a nine-year-old girl when she herself was nine, and um, it's said that after that funeral, she spent sort of several weeks just going back, visiting the girl's grave, praying to God that he would give her strength at the end of her life. She didn't have a faith or anything at this point in her life, but she was serious, and a serious approach to life characterized her. Uh, when it came to finding a husband, she didn't want to go in for the, the uh, particular financial matches that would have been advantageous, um, although she did get that, uh, but she, she was concerned that she married a serious man, you know, a man who's serious about life, that he's, he's not frivolous. She moved in circles where people were frivolous, that they were interested in frivolous pursuits, that maybe they're very, because of a stratified classes and they're very disconnected from what's going on in the majority of the country. She's, no, actually, I have this inkling in me that I need to be plugged into something serious. She was uh, married to Theophilus Hastings uh, in 1728, and she was married for 18 years, seven children, uh, of whom only one outlived her. So she, she lived to see all but one of her children die. She lived to see many of them not follow the Lord. Uh, she, she had one daughter, Selina, named after herself, who did follow the Lord and died in her 20s, uh, just as she was on the cusp of getting married herself. And uh, she, she, as so many in this era, she succumbed to illness, and uh, she, she died very tragically. And um, even Selena's comments on that, that the Lord has taken her, you know, she had a faith in the midst of tragedy, which I'll return to. She, uh, her husband himself died in 1746 when Selena was just 39. So she was widowed, and she'd seen some of her children uh, pass away in that time, and she would see the majority of the rest pass away in the rest of her years. Uh, but she, she had the great joy of being converted to Jesus Christ by her sisters-in-law, who really were her real allies in life. They were, uh, there was four of them, and they, they came into contact with 
what was the beginning of the Methodist movement, if you've heard of that. It was a huge revival that happened in the UK at a point of real dissolution when the churches were preaching rubbish, where the things were falling apart on multiple levels in society. These Methodists came out of uh, the universities in, in Oxford and in, in, um, in, in Wales as well. Preachers were coming over from there. And these were people characterized by true faith, by a real trust, by a real experience of the God who they were preaching about. And many, many people came to Christ because of it. It's said that this country avoided the horrors of the French Revolution happening here because of this revival happening beforehand, that it happened a few decades before the revolution in France happened. No revolution of the same sort spread over here because of this godliness that was brought in, the way that God apprehended these people. And he got hold of this noble woman uh, in the midst of all of this, and she mobilized her life for Christ in an amazing way, which I'm going to detail for you. Um, It's said of her, towards the end of her, actually this is after her time, King George III spoke to Charles Wesley's son, who was, uh, who was part of King George III's staff, uh, he said to him, It is my judgment, Mr. Wesley, that your uncle and father and George Whitfield and Lady Huntingdon have done more to promote the cause of true religion in this country than all the dignified clergy put together who are so apt to despise their labours. See, the king, who's got nothing to prove to anyone, looks on what's happened and he, he says... What happened here? This is where God was working in this era. And Selina, the Countess of Huntington, was a lady who was right in the midst of it. Let's turn to the scriptures then. We're going to read from uh, the epistle of James, chapter 2, four verses from 14 to 18. And uh, this is, this is a, an epistle historically um, credited to the brother of Jesus, James. And it's a hard-hitting little letter. If any of you have read this, who's read this? Yeah, you will, you will know that this is pithy, convicting stuff. It goes right to the core of, is your faith real? What does it look like? That's the questions that we're looking at. So let's read from chapter 2 of James, verses 14 to 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. Amen. Now, this, this runs into some controversy, if you've read your Bible, with what Paul says, because Paul says that we're saved by faith alone, that we're righteous, we're made right with God by faith alone, by trusting in Jesus Christ. Is, uh, is that in conflict with what James is doing? Well, on, on the face of it, it could look like it, but let me just dispel that for us quickly, because Paul and James are completely agreed on this issue, that faith, if it's actually faith, has to be alive. It says here in James's text, Faith without works is dead. I think Paul would agree with that because he says here in Galatians 5, 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, and mark this, faith working through love. Faith working through love. Faith that actually appears, that, that comes into the world, not just 
this faith, yeah, I've got faith. It's in me. I don't talk about it. It doesn't do anything, but I've got faith. <clears throat> no, not, not for James, not for Paul. They're saying faith that is faith in this faithful one, Jesus Christ, shows itself. It turns up. It doesn't turn up because you turn it on. It turns up because it can't help but turn up. You, you realize, oh, I've trusted in a God who has provided everything that's needed for my life and for godliness, for the whole of my life, for the rescue of my life, from sinfulness, from sin and corruption and ultimately death. He has delivered me because he who is life came into the world, died for me in my place that I might have life in him. He's exchanged his perfect record for my sinful records. He's exchanged my deathliness for his life and his vitality. So they're both in agreement here. Faith shows itself. So I'm going I'm to go out on a very small limb here and say faith is practical. Can your faith be practical? If it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it can't help but be practical. It will show itself. So let's start thinking about that. We're going to talk about faith as visible Faith as applied, faith as resourceful. Practical means visible, practical means applied, and practical means resourceful. So practical as visible, this is something that I've already started moving towards, to talk about being seen in your personal conduct. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And in the Countess of Huntington's life, this just came out in a marvellous way. So I've, I've already told you, she was tragically widowed at the age of 39. And uh, she, even in the run-up to that, she was doing these works. She, was, uh, she had been apprehended by the Lord Jesus Christ. This faith was in her. And it was, st- it was starting to shine out. She was um, someone, as soon as the penny dropped, as soon as this became real, he died for me. She became an evangelist. She became a gospelist, one who wanted people to know good news wherever she went. And in her social circle, that meant not a small degree of embarrassment. I don't, I don't think she was personally embarrassed, but the thing she did would have been looked on by her friends as embarrassing. Embarrassing. There was a, there was a term given to the, uh, the Methodists by those writing about them at the time, called, uh, and they used to call them enthusiasts. Now, you might, you might not think that that's so terrible. You know, someone says, oh, he's, he's enthusiastic. It might, you, you might be, there might be a backhanded compliment in there. Let, trust me, it wasn't backhanded in these times. It, it, was, it wasn't a compliment. It wasn't anywhere near being a compliment. It was pejorative. They're saying, if you, if you were called an enthusiast, it was like, you're a lunatic. You've lost your mind. They're these people who care way too much about the church, people who care way too much about Jesus. They're enthusiasts. They're beyond the pale. They've got a little bit enthusiastic about all this. And she, she could definitely be classed as enthusiastic. She basically used her rights as a lady, uh, as a noble, in ways which definitely pushed the envelope of how far you're supposed to take it. So as, as a noble, you were allowed to have a private chapel adjunct to your, to your dwelling. So you could, you could live in a place and you could have a chapel. It's supposed to be for your family, so that you, because you're rich and famous, you don't, you don't want to go to church with all the hoi polloi. You, you want to go next door with the family and do your churchy bit. Okay, she really abused the system on this one. She, she basically would rent places all over uh, England and she, she would set up the chapel next door 
have her prayer services, have a chaplain ordained. Like you, you, you would give your scarf to a preacher, and that's how people would know that they were your chaplain. Well, she did this for, you know, like, I think dozens of people. She just kept giving, she must have cost a lot in scarves, to be honest. So she's, she's there appointing people. Yeah, you're my chaplain. You're my chaplain now. You're coming around. You're preaching to me and my family. Oh, and everyone else I invite. And she just kept opening her private chapels up to people. She lived up on, she had a dwelling on uh, Park Street by Hyde Park, and she would bring in the, the actors, the, n- the notable uh, cultural people, politicians, other aristocrats of the time, into, into this home, where they would be preached to by the likes of George Whitfield, of uh, Hal Harris, of all of these very famous and very fiery preachers of the gospel from the Methodist revival. And some of them didn't really get on with it, it's fair to say. I've just got a quote for you from the Duchess of Buckingham. And this is what she had to say on a visit to Lady Huntingdon's chapel. Uh, she says... It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl upon the earth. So that, as you can see, she was the people's duchess, and, uh, <laughs> and she was very in touch with the man on the street. No, she was absolutely disgusted. So she's hearing this message, this message, you have sinned, you are full of sin, you need rescue, you need deliverance, and there's only one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can do that. You have to trust that he died for you on the cross and that he was raised to bring you to new life. She didn't like that. She didn't didn't enjoy that at all. But there were others like the Earl of Dartmouth, the second Earl of Dartmouth, who actually uh, is a politician. He he was um, the president of the Royal Society. He, He was a man uh, in public life. And he dramatically came to Christ in that, in that very setting that she, she set up, that uh, she was humble enough to set up, that she's saying, look, I don't mind the embarrassment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. She actually swore by uh, the verse 1 Corinthians 1.26, which says this. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And she would say of this verse that she was so grateful for the letter M. It says, not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But she said, actually, I've got a heart for the people of my own class. I've got a heart for these people. And... It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's, it's something that you need to be laboring in prayer for. It's something that you need to be uh, willing to put yourself through embarrassment for. And she did. And as, don't, don't get me wrong, she wasn't just witnessing to the people of her class. She, she would hold prayer meetings. She would financially provide for her servants in her household. I mean, it, it, that, we bulk at that. Like, oh, she had so- servants in her household. Yes, that's what you did. That's what you had. The, the question isn't whether you have them or not. It's how do you treat these people? Are these people in your heart? Well, they were in her heart. Just as much as these people who were heading up the Royal Society. And she, she was there uh, fighting for them. Now, embarrassment's one thing, but disappointment and bereavement is another. And she experienced those, as I say. It went beyond embarrassment. It was uh, her life experience included deep, deep bereavements. And she loved her husband and was widowed at the age of 39 with him being taken quite suddenly. He said to her three weeks before he died that he had a dream of uh, death standing at the end of their bed and then crawling up 
between them in the bed. And she, she did her best to comfort him. No, I'm sure it's nothing. And three weeks later, he was dead. And it really changed her world. She couldn't talk about him for the rest of her life without crying, without, without missing him. She missed him all the time. So there, there was a great love there in her, in her household, and it was cut off tragically. That's, that's what tragedy means. It's when things finish without resolving. And that's what happened to her there. And uh, she consulted her friend, the preacher, Hal Harris, after this death. And she mourned for like three weeks after he died. She, she rented a place near where he had been buried just to pray, just to seek God, just to be on her own. So faith isn't unrealistic. Faith is practical. Faith is in the real world. Faith goes through things. Faith and trust in God doesn't just say, oh, well, you know, he's on the throne, sun's still shining. He is on the throne. The sun might be still shining, but don't be unrealistic about life because true faith isn't unrealistic about life. It's practical when it goes through it. She wrote to her friend Hal Harris, and um, Hal Harris, uh, she, she was, he says this, she consulted me about which was it best, to live retired and to give up all or to fill her place. And I said the latter I thought was right. You know, he can see it. He knows in the question when she's saying, should I retire now and give up all? You can tell when someone's saying that. They don't want to do that. Should I retire at 39 and give up all? Or should I fill my place? Well, look, you know the answers in the question. You know when someone's saying that, that they see a little bit of what God might be calling them to in their life. See a little bit. They don't want to say it out loud. They don't want to be proud. They don't want to be uh, presumptuous. But friends can be great mirrors in this. If you go to a friend and say, hey, what, what do you see in me? What, what do you think God's doing? You know, it's a brave question to ask of each other. You should be asking it of your friends. You should be asking it of those that you trust, of confidants who, uh, who love the Lord Jesus, who trust in him. Ask it, because it's often his means of getting the ball rolling, of enabling the thing, of lighting the touch paper. And that's what happened with her. So at 39... She really strikes out on her own. And this is when she moves into a fifth gear in her life. This is when she starts a new phase of ministry as a widow, as, as a, a woman who was often ill. She's often sickly. She's very dependent on God. You know, she lived her She wasn't just a battle axe, but she did amazing things because of her trust. What I'd say to you is face disappointment with faith. Do go through it, do go through the valley. Go through the valley because you have a shepherd leading you through. He will not abandon you. He's not scared of the valley. He's not scared of pain. He's not scared of fear. He's not scared of any of these things. He is life itself and he'll bring life into the deadest parts of your life. He'll cause them to be used for great good for his kingdom's sake. So let me move on to talk about practical being applied. Practical is visible, yes. Secondly, practical is applied. So if visible means that it shows up in your personal life and people can observe it in you, what I'm saying here, practical being applied, means that it shows up in public life. It shows up in workplace. It shows up in government. It shows up in the way that things are run in a city. It shows up in the way that things are reformed. God knows that we need things reformed in our country now. I don't know if any of you read about the prisons in this country. You look at that and you think, men and women of God are needed in areas like this. Institutions that are just corrupt beyond belief, falling apart. You know, it's not just within the church that the church blesses. The people of God, the church, blesses out into education, 
into justice, into government, into these things. Listen, God might be speaking to you tonight. God might want to tell you about your place in these. So Jesus echoes uh, what we've already read in James. Well, he, he institutes what we've read in James when he says in Luke 3 verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Now what's he saying? He's saying your faith, your trust, the fact that you believe that you will be provided for, whatever you give out, God's going to keep giving back to you. He's going to give you more. He's going to cause you to live and to stand by faith. You don't have to be in fear about giving out of your resources, financially, intellectually, in any way, because you have been provided for, you will be provided for by a God who loves you. And this is the posture that we take towards public life. In uh, the Roman Empire, the word religare, which um, is religion, wasn't about private belief. It wasn't this little light of mine, just like a little candle inside of me. It's like, it's, it was stuff that you did. It literally referred to stuff you did. Religare, it means like to, to be bound up, to the, the connections that are made. It's your connectedness to life and to, to public life. So religion... And true faith actually does something. And it does something supernatural. If it's faith in the living God, it's not just going to be mundane. It's not going to be a boring, uh, a boring practical. It is going to be the most exciting, the most vivacious, the most alive practical you can imagine. Because of the one who is enlivening it. Because of the one who's doing it. In Hebrews 11 verse 33 uh, this is in a chapter, Hebrews 11, a very famous chapter that talks about the exploits of those who had faith in the Lord in the Old Testament. It's almost like a hall of faith. It's a catalogue of those exploits that were done. And the writer says this. He says, those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, interesting, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. How did they do those things? Through faith. That cannot be referring to a little faith inside you that no one ever gets to see. So people wouldn't even be able to come up to you and say, hey, I see your faith in Christ. I see what it's causing you to do in, on the personal level, let alone them coming up and saying, you're changing this nation. You're changing people's lives for the better because of this faith that's in you, because of, because of being loved by God. Because you've been loved much, you love much. You know, that's what we're talking about with this faith. Faith that conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. Now, let's move our story about the countess down to Brighton. She came here. She, she did mighty things here. And uh, she came down initially because her son was ill with smallpox and uh, would eventually die of it. But she came down here thinking, okay, this will be a break from London. They, they, they lived in Downing Street in London. They lived at number 11. And they, uh, they came down here. And uh, she, as, as soon as she turned up in Brightonstone, as it was called, in Brighton, uh, then a lady came up to her and said, Madam, you've come. And she was like, yeah, <laughs> here I am. And she said, three years ago in a dream, I saw you wearing these exact clothes that you're wearing. And I was told in that dream that she, a lady who looks like this will turn up and will do much good. And this lady who was speaking to her wasn't a Christian. She wasn't saved. She wasn't in Christ. And so the first things first, Selena brought her to a knowledge of the Lord. This lady became saved. She became uh, a follower of Jesus and died quite soon afterwards. So it's actually, you see this dramatic working of God 
in how the Countess appeared in Brighton. And she was very, uh, very taken by that. Actually, you know, she's there in these tragic circumstances. Her son then subsequently dies. But she's, she's listening. She's saying, God's speaking in this. God speaks through circumstances. I hope you know that. I hope you know that part of true faith is this prophetic element, this exciting dynamic that God speaks to you. God speaks to you even now. Even today, he might be speaking to you. It says in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Soften your heart to receive the word of God. Act upon it. So she did. She, uh, she, in her grief, she uh, managed to witness to another lady who, um, who was in great great illness, really. She is a wife of a soldier who had given birth to twins here in the city. And uh, she was very ill because of it. You know, childbirth was not easy uh, and never is. But in this particular era, was just very dangerous. And this, this lady had given birth to twins and was very ill on death's door. Uh, Selena went and spoke to her about the gospel, brought her to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and started praying with her. This woman did subsequently die. She died soon afterwards, but she had come to Christ. And actually, as a result of it, a women's prayer meeting was set up, a women's Bible study that Selena started running. She was very wary because she, she was a Calvinist Christian, and she was uh, very keen to take Scripture seriously. She'd seen in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy the prohibitions on teaching for women that she, uh, she took very seriously. And she one day looked up and realized that in her women's Bible study meeting, a man had crept in. And it wasn't just any man. This, yeah, it, it wasn't just any man. This, this was a foul-mouthed blacksmith who had, who had come in, and he was sitting there. And she wondered, am I sinning by preaching the gospel here? Should I carry on? She chose to ignore him, just carried on with it. And actually, this man came to Christ, and then it proved to be a catalyst for the gospel. Actually, people realizing everyone can be reached for the gospel, everyone can be reached by the gospel, and it started burgeoning into basically a church plant. And that's what happened here in Brighton. She planted the first of the Countess of Huntington chapels, which were uh, actually designed for the public, you know, openly, rather than being like a stealth evangelism means for uh, the nobility. These actually reached into society in a very profound way. And she set this up. She was very, uh, very diligent in prayer as well. As I say, she wasn't a preacher in these churches, but she would, she would organize the preachers. She was a great organizer and you know, a formidable leader herself. She would be asking pre- preachers, telling preachers, you come and preach here. And she got George Whitfield down to preach at the inauguration of the church in Brighton, and, and she, uh, she set up a rota of these preachers coming down. And what she would do is prior to the meeting, she'd get up early, pray, for an hour or so beforehand, and then whilst the service was going on, she'd be in a kind of concealed place whilst the preacher's preaching, and she'd be praying the whole way through for the preacher to have freedom and for salvation to come to many people, that people be rescued, that people be healed in the name of Jesus. She was formidable, and that's what she uh, did in obedience to her Lord. So, as I said before, this service, this appliedness of practical faith doesn't need to be boring. In fact, it mustn't be boring. It can't be boring because of who it is faith in. It's faith in this Jesus who is the Lord of life, the one who heals all sicknesses, who dispels diseases, who one day will wipe away every tear, who, who will bring all things to great culmination. And you see this in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 3, where Peter is uh, confronted with 
a beggar at the gates who, who asks the apostles for money, says, you know, have you got anything for me? And he says to them, his response is great, because he's seen his Lord, he's seen how the Lord ministers. The Lord ministers as if he's Lord of all the money, as if he's Lord of all the people, because he is. He's sovereign over all institutions, all people, all money, all funds, all belongs to him. So he says to this beggar, look, I haven't got any silver or gold, which is honest, you know, he's not just being stingy. And he, he says, but such as I have, I give to you. Get up and walk. And he did what he'd seen his master do. Telling us here today that that is our lot too. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him now, then you minister in the same resurrection power. Well, that can be scary. You can immediately want to put qualifiers on that. Oh, yeah, the same resurrection power, but just through me, so it's a bit less. No, that you're not the issue. In an absolutely right sense, you're not the issue. That, that little faith inside of you that you think is a little light is actually fire that's supposed to come out of your mouth because it's his. He's put his fire within you. He's put his life within you. He's put it in you to minister to others. Minister means administer. It, means it needs to go out and do the will of God, the healing will, the gracious will, the restorative will, that he wants to reconcile people to God through you. And if you don't think much of yourself, that's good. That's a rather good thing for gospel ministry. It's a rather good thing for the kingdom of God because it's him who will receive all the glory. It's him who will be seen as glorious in your life. Let's move on to this final point then, that practical is resourceful. You know, all of these work together. That practical is visible. Yes, of course it shows up. That it then spills over into public life. Of course it does. That it's resourceful. This means taking stock. This is looking at what God's given you in terms of influence, in terms of your mind, in terms of your capacity in your heart, your ability to listen to people. All of these things, they're gifts. And they're gifts that are all pretty much in your blind spot. It's always the way, you know. And it's made worse by a certain British modesty as well. I might say an English modesty that you don't want to say what you're good at. Please, you know, if there's a takeaway from this sermon, speak to each other, saying, what, what do you see in me? What do you see in me? What do you think God's doing in me? If, that's, if that question is easier than what do you see in me? So, what do you see in me sounds a little bit like, tell me how great I am. Tell me how talented I am. How am I looking? No, it's all of God, right? It's all of God. If it makes it easier for you to ask someone, to ask a brother or sister, what, what do you see in me? Ask, what do you think God's doing with me? Have you got any pointers for me? Do it. It will do us good. It won't just do you good. It will do us good. And by us, I mean this church. I mean Brighton. I mean the nation. I mean the world. It, th- this, is, this is something, please, please act upon it. Uh, so resourceful is knowing what you have in your hand. It's knowing what you have in your head and what in, you have in your heart and what can be deployed. So Luke 12, uh, 48, in the Gospel of Luke, it says this. Everyone to whom much was given of him and her, much will be required. And from him and her, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And that can sound daunting, can't it? You think, well, I hope God hasn't given me too much, because then then a lot's going to be required. I know what you're thinking. But really, really don't shy away from this. This is his, his responsibility. He's entrusting it to you. And if he hasn't given it to you, then he won't hold you responsible for it. Right, but be responsible with what you've been given. Be faithful with the little, 
be given more, be entrusted with more. Uh, it, it's, um, it's notable that to found this chapel in Brighton, Selina the Countess of Huntingdon sold all her jewellery. Think about that. Think about, you know, this is going to be harder for, it's going to be hard for all of us to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of an 18th century noblewoman. But think what your jewellery means. Think what it means socially. Think what it means in terms of how you're presented in public. She limited herself to buying one new dress a year. One new dress a year. As a, as a frugality, not just to be like monkish and say, look, look how bad things are, but to say, no, actually, everything I have is going to be turned over. It's going to be, I'm going to find out what it is that I have. I'm going to devote what it is that I have, and I'm going to use it for the kingdom of God. She sold all her jewelry. It came to £698.15, shillings, which in today's money is about £150,000, and that's what she used to start the church in Brighton here. When it was totted up at the end of her life, it was worked out that she'd given around uh, £100,000 in that day's money, which today would be the astonishing sum of £15 million. And you see this church that she she planted. This was in North Street. There's a a picture of it for you. Um, And on the previous slide is what, what it looked like when it was first built. So it went through a couple of different iterations, getting expanded each time because of the work expanding. And she pumped her money into it. She pumped her money into building this uh, church for the people of Brighton. The next uh, picture of it is when it, what, what it looked like until its closure in 1972 when it's demolished. You may be able to place it better from that picture. It's actually on North Street, uh, opposite where Oaxaca is now. That's where, that's where the place was. And um, there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot more that could be said about what she did there. 15 million pounds. 15 million pounds given over into the work of God. She started a, a school for preachers in Trefeca in, um, in Wales as well, which she realized, actually, I need... To, this was pre- perhaps like the greatest work of her life. She, she realized that this work needs to go on for another generation. I'm going to need to train some people, and I'm going to need to train men to preach all around the country. And she saw this flourishing of her movement across the country, not without opposition, faced great opposition and went through it with faith. Uh, and she, she founded the Trevecca Preachers College, which she became the, the headmistress of. So she was kind of hatching all these baby preachers to go out across uh, the whole of the UK. And all of these men went off and, and uh, did great exploits for God because they saw what she modeled and they, were, uh, they benefited from the, the resources, literally from the money that she gave. She held them very, very accountable to the money that she gave them as well. And if she ever felt that people were spending unwisely, she would pull them up on it. So she, she wasn't soft in any way. At one point, she, um, uh, she, she was worried that the Archbishop of Canterbury was having too many riotous parties at Lambeth Palace, which he was. Like, by all accounts, he, bought, he wasn't a good guy. He was doing this thing. And um, she went to him one-on-one and said, look, you've got to stop this. This is dishonoring to the Lord. This is dishonoring to the kingdom. And he's like, yeah, yeah, Brushed her off and thought that he'd heard the end of it. He hadn't heard the end of it, as it turned out. Uh, she went to the king. She, she went over his head to the king. And uh, she gained an audience with the king and said to him, look, you've got to reign in the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the king said, I've heard of you. I've heard of you. And he liked it. He, he liked what he saw, and he did it. He, he said, um, you, you are, you've done a mighty thing here. And she went and, uh, he went and 
pulled the rug out from the archbishop. So if you're ever in that situation, you know what to do. So <laughs> she, I just want you to note that with this preacher's college, she was in her 60s when she did it. She was 39 when she really started motoring and doing this stuff. You might worry about age and think about, oh, am I useful to God at the age I am? I, you know, we can get neurotic about it, at the phase of life I am. I'm too young, I'm too old. Not the question, are you devoted? Have you, have you taken an inventory of what he's put in you, devoted it back to him, and said, use me, push me out, send me out. Here I am, send me. That's what she was doing. That's what was going on. She said at the end of her life, I feel that if I had a thousand worlds and a thousand lives, through grace assisting, that that dear Lamb of God, my best, my eternal, my only friend, should have all dedicated to his service and glory. Now, friends, that kind of devotion can't be cooked up. That kind of devotion comes from knowing that you have that eternal friend, that you have that shepherd who has done you active good through the valleys and through the mountaintops, but definitely through the valleys. Think of those seven children, only one of them outliving her, most of them not wanting anything to do with this mission that she had been brought into. A lot of disappointment, a lot of bereavement, a lot of faith. A lot of trust in the one who was faithful. Not saying, oh, God didn't do this, God wasn't part of this. No, trusting that God was in the affairs of mankind, but faithfully and trustworthily in the affairs of his people and devoted with an undying love to his people. Let me close with those three points. Know what you have. Devote what you have. Use what you have. Jesus walked this path. He walked this path as our example, as well as our saviour. The saviour bit's more important, but the example bit's worth our paying attention to too. John 12, verse 27, when Jesus is considered publicly, he said to people, this is why I'm here. I've come to die for you. I've come to do this. He, he appears to just reflect on what he said, and he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is the reason I came here. I came here to burn bright for the glory of God. And he says, Father, now you be glorified. And a voice comes from heaven that says, I've glorified my name. I will glorify my name in you. I'll glorify it again. And friends, if you call yourself a Christian here today, that is your lot too. It's my lot. It's your lot. If you're a brother or sister of mine in the faith, it's your lot. It says in Hebrews 2 verse 10 that he did all this to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He did it to bring us into the glory of God, to reconcile us to God, but so that we would be glorified, so that we would glory in God publicly, that our faith would be seen. Let me just pray for us now as we close. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you for our lives. We're so grateful for great inspirations of those who've walked with perseverance the walk of life and in a faithful way, trusting in you, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're so trustworthy, Lord. We can lean upon you with the full weight of our lives. Lord, as we come, as we come to take the supper, as we come to sing your praises, we pray your blessing. Lord, I, I want to come with open arms and open hands, not because I've got lots to give to you, but because I want to receive again from you. I want to receive inspiration. I want to receive 
power from the Holy Spirit. I want, I want to receive an awareness of all those things that you've put in me, things that you haven't even revealed to me yet because it'd be too much for me to take on. Lord, I pray for every brother and sister in here, Lord, that they would feel this tangible presence of God today. I pray that you're drawn near in your kindness, in your love, in your mercy, that as we take the bread and we take the wine, we would experience you, Lord Jesus, given for us, always given for us, not just given once, but given today as well. Lord, you are always for us. You're always towards us. We pray you bless us that we might be a blessing to this church, to this city, to this nation. In Jesus' name, amen.